Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Seeing a large flock of trumpeter swans is awe-inspiring. And it wasn't very long ago that the sight of a hundred or more trumpeters in Iowa was unheard of outside of historical accounts. This hour, we'll talk about the waterfowl that winter in Iowa, how their populations have rebounded and flourished, and why they choose to spend these cold winter months in Iowa's frigid waters. Jim Pease is Emeritus Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management and an environmental interpretive and wildlife consultant, and he is with me. Hello, Jim. Hello, Charity. How are you this morning? Wonderful. It is so good to have you here. And I know that I have told you this story many times, how I I always get excited when I see a bald eagle. And after my family moved back to Iowa and I would excitedly point out every bald eagle, my kids would be like, Mom, why is this such a big deal? And I told them, of course, because when I was a kid, I I didn't see them. And I thought that my children would never get to see bald eagles. I have never even bothered to tell them that it used to be exciting to see Canada geese because I just I don't think that they would believe me. I think that a lot of listeners today are not going to believe us. But when I was a kid, it was exciting to see a Canada goose. Yeah. In fact, uh, I grew up in southeastern Iowa in Burlington and uh, Seeing geese was only a two times a year experience uh, uh, if you were in Burlington. That was in the spring as they flew over Burlington, (laughs) up the Mississippi River, uh, going north to their nesting grounds uh, much farther north. Or in the fall as they were coming south and you would see these V's and hear the honk. And that was a very exciting thing to to see and hear. And and that's when we saw them. And uh, we never saw swans, of course. And eagles we would see in the winter time, uh, uh, south of town where there was some open water below a, a, some cooling towers that kept the the, the river ice free in the winter time. When we see eagles there, mainly adults, uh, almost very few, uh, if no uh, juveniles at all, and and it is an amazing turnaround if you think about that. I grew up there in the 50s and 60s, and and the change from then until now is very dramatic in the state. Uh, all three species are back in abundance. And it's a story that I know our listeners have heard from me before uh, and probably other other guests as well. But when Euro-American settlers came to this region, it was, uh, uh, as Jim Dinsmore's uh, uh, book uh, is, is entitled, it was a country so full of game. It was amazing. It was teeming with with wildlife species. There were 30 species of of waterfowl alone that either nested here or migrated through here using all of the the rivers, uh, or a state that's very rich in rivers and streams, and wetlands, uh, especially in the north-central portion of the state. We had thousands and thousands of wetlands filled with water and filled with with, uh, lots of food for those, those migrating waterfowl. But by 1900, that had all changed because they came to uh, a part of the country that had no regulations, uh, actually waterfowl along with all kinds of other game, was taken whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, whatever age of, of, of they wanted, and as many as they wanted. In fact, ducks, for example, were shipped back east by the trainload 
uh, to markets uh, uh, on the East Coast, restaurants and, and other other places. So it was just, just an amazing difference. So by 1900, those populations of all of those species, um, swans being a you know a 30 plus pound bird and, and very valuable for feathers as well as meat and, and everything else, uh, was just um, they were they were nearly completely wiped out. Some species of ducks were nearly wiped out. And then you add to that the droughts that occurred, especially by the 1930s, waterfowl in Iowa were probably at their all-time low. And uh, things began to change at that point. We finally, uh, our our forefathers and mothers finally saw the error of their ways. And there began to be uh, implemented bag limits, seasons, Gender, you know, you could only take certain uh, genders of, of certain species. And, and uh, uh, gradually then restoration came into it as well. And, and so I it, think it, it, yeah, no species, no species, Jim, has <laughs> responded better than Canada geese, I think. I mean, oh, this, this yeah. is the soundtrack <laughs> of our lives now. Yeah, it is now. I mean, it's gotten to the point, of course. Oh, yes, there we go. <laughs> Oh, thank you. <laughs> but, you I was know, hoping you were going to ask me to make that. Oh, so. well. You're... My honk is not nearly as good. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it really, oh, there are so many species have come back in, in really powerful ways. But yeah, Canada, yeah. Canada geese, of course, many people consider them to be a nuisance species. I, myself, am very fond of them. But uh, right. they, they did rebound. They're so incredibly good at adapting to modern circumstances. Um, yeah, this sure. They're kind of remarkable, aren't they? Well, it's, it is it is remarkable, but it didn't just happen by chance. It was a, a purposeful effort on the part of then what was called the Iowa Conservation Commission, now the Iowa DNR, uh, to, to try to repopulate them in the state. We had... Um, Probably thousands and thousands of geese uh, prior to uh, uh, you know 1900, uh, and those were quickly wiped out. In fact, by 1900, basically geese, the the the, the subspecies, the giant Canada goose that was in Iowa, was basically extirpated from the state, gone from the state. There were there were some populations, very small populations, both in captivity and um, uh, in in a few wild uh, places farther north. And they began to use those in the 1960s. Uh, some small remnant of the, that original subspecies was, uh, 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 that formerly nested in Iowa was brought back uh, into the state. And uh, uh, in, in 1964, they began to uh, try to reestablish them. They're first, really, 16 pairs. <laughs> you wow. Know, you think about that. And from 16 pairs, <laughs> lots and lots grew. And that was mainly up in uh, uh, north central Iowa and Emmett County, uh, northwestern Iowa. And and uh, birds from from some pairs then were, were transplanted to other places, uh, um, uh, counties around there. And, and the, the story was just, just amazing. So by by 1980, there were about something like 1,600 nesting Canada's, uh, Canada geese in north central and northwestern Iowa. And then they began during the 1990s to try to repopulate some of the places, especially state-owned areas, marshes and everything, lakes, big lakes in southern Iowa, to fill in the gaps. Well, 
it was very successful. <laughs> and and geese were in by nineteen ninety three, geese were in every nesting in every county uh in the state of Iowa. So uh and today of course we have sort of um the opposite. Um we, we, we now have this abundance of geese and they overwinter here and and uh uh, if you're if you're a golfer, uh, you you might not like geese because they they poop on your your golf greens. Uh, they 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 uh, 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 may a nesting goose may may attack you if you're a, a runner and you run near their nest, or if you're a golfer, uh, you know. So they and, and if you're a uh, I remember a restaurant down in uh, uh, near Des Moines that called me and said, you know, we had these. Uh, originally, they had the windows that looked out over the lake and the nesting geese, and those were the prime seats. You had to pay extra to get those seats. And within a year, they were calling me to say, we'd like to get rid of some of these geese. <laughs> there were there were so many of them, they were making quite the mess on the sidewalks and everything, and, and, and those weren't prime seats anymore. <laughs> you didn't have to pay extra to, to watch them. So they are considered, particularly in urban areas, can be... Um, an, an, uh, somewhat of a, of a nuisance. I, I do remember uh, you know, when I've been paddling, uh, I paddled over 2,200 miles of Iowa rivers for the water trails program. And, 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 and what I've noticed and, and, uh, sort of kept track, uh, I haven't done all the math, but it's pretty, pretty obvious that urban geese, the number of goslings tends to be two or three times the number of goslings in, than in rural areas. Because in rural areas, there are more predators to, to uh, uh, you know, uh, take a lot of the sure. goslings as, as they begin to grow. But in urban areas, there's uh, sort of a protection, <laughs> better protection for them, and, and there aren't as many predators. Uh, and and they, um, they do very well. So <laughs> the numbers have grown sort of exponentially. I think the estimate is now um, – that that we're we're talking certainly in the many millions uh, in the flyway in the Mississippi flyway, um, uh, but it it uh, the resident Canada goose population in Iowa by 2020 uh, the estimates are over a hundred thousand uh, animals. So, wow. Well, was, and so you talked about change, <laughs> right? You talked about seeing geese um, fly, you know, north yeah. and then fly south, and that's certainly part of our I guess our cultural understanding of what waterfowl sure. do, but as you said, I mean our our geese, our Canada geese, they stay here all winter long. At least many, many of them do. Why? Why do they stay here? <laughs> yeah, uh, that, those numbers have just been um, uh, flocking to high numbers. <laughs> I think in 1990 there was something about, or in the 1970s there were about three thousand. Um, geese that may have overwintered, and now something near, nearly a quarter million uh, will overwinter in Iowa. There are a number of reasons. Um, number one, the, they, uh, the landscape has changed so much, especially since the 70s, that, um, that there's a, a lot more uh, sort of waste grain in the fields, and uh, so they, they can find food. Secondly, they can find open water. In part because uh, there's always open water below dams, unless we have really, really severe winters. And even many of our lakes have open water um, uh, that the geese actually keep open. 
Climate change has definitely helped that. As our winters have become warmer, as we're experiencing this week, uh, there's a lot more open water through the wintertime. All right, and we will talk more about that, why why they stay, how they stay, and how we interact with them in just a moment. With me today, wildlife biologist Jim Pease. We are talking about the waterfowl that winter in Iowa, primarily Canada geese and trumpeter swans, but there are many other species that we get to watch as well. And we'd love to hear your observations. Tell us where you love to watch waterfowl. Email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. More in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me this hour, wildlife biologist Jim Pease. We are talking about waterfowl that winter here in the state. It is not unusual now to get to see, of course, flocks of hundreds of Canada geese all over the state, but also hundreds of trumpeter swans, which would have been unheard of not very long ago. All right, Jim, we, we were talking about Canada geese, and I do want to talk a little bit more about them because now I know a lot of people are not fond of them and a lot of people are afraid of them. I will say, you know, having having had close contact with wildlife my whole life, um, I've never been attacked by a Canada goose that I didn't already personally know. <laughs> so... <laughs> and, and you knew this how? They, uh, they, had, uh, they had been rehabbed, <laughs> raised, raised by my family because ah, they, yes, were, they yes. were orphaned. Okay. So, um, and, and really just one, just one. I've only been attacked by uh, one Canada okay. goose, but it was repeated. Um, but you know, so, so we do, we run through their neighborhoods. They, they live in our neighborhoods. One of my favorite ways to observe them is in the springtime when there are these large gatherings of geese and they have their goslings and they're protective of their goslings. And we get to see the sentinel geese, the geese that are watching out and they're the ones that are going to hiss at you and they're going to walk toward you when you get close to their territory. But tell me more about their behavior and what they're doing. Well, one of the most fascinating things about about geese, once the goslings um, hatch out, and 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 goose nests are on in like many many or most duck duck nests as well, uh, waterfowl nest in the uplands that surround the wetlands, so they're in the grassy areas and that. And once the goslings are hatched, uh, they may have been threatened during nesting. You know, they nest for uh, they're sitting on those eggs for about thirty days. And uh, it, that's a long period of time, and predators have an opportunity to threaten them. So you have uh, uh, often uh, the the male uh, of the uh, will guard the ne- the the female who might be on the nest during the day. I've seen actually a geese drive off a coyote uh, wow. who was very determined to get to those eggs. Never did. Uh, he was afraid of that goose. So uh, it, it uh, for, for, for good reason. They can, uh, if you've ever 
You've held them, I'm, I yeah, know, they're and they're very quite strong. strong. Yeah. <laughs> and if that uh, wing would catch you uh, right across the head, uh, you'd be out for a while, <laughs> I think. it's uh, They're very, very strong, and uh, the uh, the coyotes seem to know that. Uh, but they, they, uh, uh, they will migrate then often from uh, taking them to water. But if they don't feel that pond is safe, um, or they may, for example, nest in a, in a yard or in, a, um, uh, in front of a business uh, or, or a school. We have lots of pictures of, of geese on a nest uh, right next to a building. Well, they will take them then to the water, and they may walk clear through the neighborhood. And the sentinel will often fly up on top of houses. I've had one on top of my house uh, right at the peak, honking away, looking and, and communicating with the one on the ground who's hiding with the goslings and, and snaking through the grasses or through the bushes uh, to get down to, uh, uh, to a different water, uh, uh, a different lake or a pond. And uh, uh, seeing them on top of a house is quite comical. I think <laughs> I, I love go, it. There's there's a neighborhood. What is I, this goose doing? Right, there? there's a neighborhood <laughs> I often drive through, and I can just see like I can. Yeah. I'm coming down a hill, and I can see the whole neighborhood, and I will see four or five houses with a single goose standing on <laughs> yeah, top, which I think on top. I think is very oh, cool. Oh. I, I also think that their communal relationship is very interesting because often I will see a goose on the water being followed by dozens, literally dozens of goslings. They yeah. did not all come from one nest. So they they no. have communal care of their offspring. Yeah, they do. And and they'll often share that, that uh, responsibility for care of the goslings and, and both the uh, the ganders and and the goose will uh, uh, will will share that responsibility, and and they'll often band together and and there's safety in numbers, I guess. So you 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 save a lot more of the goslings if you do band together, and in an area uh, like most of our cities uh, that are built along rivers and have lots of ponds, and we have lots of ponds in the in the front of uh, businesses that uh, uh, see that as a beautiful way to to decorate their landscape, and the geese love it because geese are grazers. They eat grass, and what happens, of course, is uh, on golf courses, uh, in our lawns, uh, we, we, we may water them, we, uh, we cut them periodically, so we make their sh- sure there's fresh uh, green grass all Tender, the time. Tender, right. <laughs> and uh, we fertilize them so it grows fast. And and geese think they've died and gone to goose heaven right there, you know. And then we put a pond in the middle of it. It's just like, oh, my gosh, this is fantastic. And and it, golf courses uh, have often called me when I was extension wildlife specialist. I'd have uh, people doing uh, taking care of golf courses calling me saying, how do I get rid of the geese, or at least limit the population. I said, well, one thing you can do is stop mowing clear down to the water. If you leave tall grasses, and I mean tall ones, uh, things like, uh, uh, you know, three or four feet tall, uh, switchgrass or big blue stem, uh, something like that, uh, uh, for a, a buffer around that pond, geese don't like that because predators can hide in there, and uh, so they feel less safe there, and so... Make them feel less safe. Yes, you'll lose a few more golf balls, but you, you have to take that uh, uh, as as part of the the, the deal. So it's uh, it, it it is possible to uh, to manage them a little bit, but they're certainly 
very successful. And when you think about this, it really is a, an incredible success story because we've gone from something that we thought was not only rare, but we thought at one time the giant Canada goose may be extinct. And then they began to uh, find some populations in the 1950s and early 60s and began to repopulate uh, Iowa. And now in the flyway, we have certainly over a million geese uh, that come through. And they are Iowa's, um, from a hunting standpoint, they are the most important waterfowl species uh, for for uh, waterfowl hunters, surpassing even mallards, believe it or not. Interesting. It's just, just yeah. amazing. So, well, I, yeah, I, I, I it's do really wanna... quite a story. Now, of so. course, we know that in Iowa we have a lot of water quality problems. Um, mm, and yeah. we also know that in the past geese feces have been blamed for pollution that actually came from livestock um, waste contamination. But how how big a problem is it that we have this huge population of geese and, um, you know, we have water that is often not safe for humans? Well, there's there's no question that it is is a problem, certainly on beaches, on public beaches, um, particularly if the beaches beaches have uh, grass, uh, you know, right behind them. Because the the geese will go and graze on that grass, go get a drink out of the water, and then uh, uh, rest on the on the beach. <laughs> and and that zone, uh, the first sort of six feet of of water, is often heavily contaminated with bacteria that come from the feces of the of the geese. So that's a serious problem. So we have to figure out ways, and we're in the process here in Story County of trying to figure that out on our beaches here. Uh, they're owned by the County Conservation Board how to keep the geese, how can we structure the beach so that the geese are not attracted to that, uh, to graze or to loaf. Um, And there are lots of ways to to try to do that. It's not easy, and it's often not cheap either. Um, uh, There are people making their living um, hazing geese now. Uh, uh, it, It has not been terribly successful in some instances, but the the border collies that chase geese um, are are uh, are pretty good at it, and uh, they do tend to um, uh, to keep them away from certain areas. Uh, we've also tried uh, uh, very liberal hunting regulations to try to reduce the population. So far, that hasn't worked terribly well, although it does um, reduce the populations in some local areas, uh, so that those resident geese that are there all year round that population goes down. But they seem to compensate for that very quickly the next year by having larger broods. So it's it's, uh, it's certainly a problem. There are also uh, attempts to um, you know, either destroy eggs in the nests or shake the eggs so that the, they will not hatch. And then the goose and the gander, they sit on them long enough and then they never hatch because the, the embryos uh, are, are dead within the, uh, the egg. But... Uh, uh, there are lots of uh, lots of attempts to do all kinds of things, and and uh, some are successful and some are not. And of course, some folks don't like to see that. Um, they don't like birth control of any kind. So so it's a it's a it's a certainly a, a, a societal problem. I think it's a nice problem to have that we have too many instead of none. 
And uh, I'm with you. Uh, I'm with you. It <laughs> can be frustrating, but uh, I, I think it's a good problem. To All have. right. We have a few geese questions, and then we're going to talk about trumpeter swans and, and other waterfowl as well. I'm talking with Jim cool. Pease, Emeritus Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management at Iowa State University. You are welcome to join the conversation. You can give us a call at 866-780-9100 or send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. So Jim has a question for you. And I don't think you have an answer, but I love the question. He says, why okay. do they honk constantly while they fly? <laughs> well, they're communicating with one another. They're, uh, we don't know what they're saying, but they're certainly, you know, to stay in that V. Um, you, you know, sometimes, Charity, you've probably seen this where where the, uh, the V is not a perfect V. There's a sort of a short side and a long side. You know why that is? No. There are more geese on the long side. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, that's a fifth grade joke. I had to get that in. So, um, for those of you who have fifth graders out there, you can you can tell them that tonight. So, so these these um, uh, these geese uh, need to communicate because they're they're changing the leader. you know, frequently, not not every minute or so, but they certainly change that leader uh, because that that leader is uh, really pushing the most air and and determining where they go. So they're they're communicating with one another. Who knows what they're saying? Maybe they're saying, "Hey, did you hear the one about you know?" They're, maybe they're telling fifth grade jokes. I don't know to one another. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, they're certainly communicating, and and honking is their way of doing that. If you listen long enough, you do hear different kinds of honks. And if you really listen well, you can hear different kinds of geese. We do get snow geese as well, and there are even a few snow geese that overwinter here in Iowa. And snow geese go farther north. They nest up on the tundra. Their numbers have have really exploded, much more than than even Canada geese. And um, uh, they they, uh, uh, have a much higher pitch. And uh, so you have to, to listen to that honking and and see if you can detect differences and maybe figure out what they're saying. I have no idea what they're saying, and I don't think that anybody does, but they're certainly communicating with one another. Right. Well, it just sounds like fun to me, but yeah. <laughs> that's that's a little anthropomorphic. Um, so Dirk has a very important question. Why do drivers honk at each other all the time? <laughs> that, does, that sounds less They're fun. They're communicating something. Less fun, <laughs> yes. though. All right. Um, Dirk says, and this is a very important question, he says, I, I see that we're killing more commercial flocks and even some pets and farmed mink because of bird flu infections. How much of a risk is this to our wild geese? Yeah, that's a great question, and um, it's certainly uh, there's a lot of indications that birds, um, particularly uh, overwintering birds, uh, are are some are dying of bird flu. Uh, it it probably uh, will be endemic in goose and other waterfowl populations uh, now, and it will spring back up uh, occasionally. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really kind of, uh, it's, it's still in the, in the research stages, but it sure looks like, uh, some are dying, uh, if not dying of bird flu, certainly have, uh, contracted it. Uh, they can recover from bird flu. These are tough birds, but still bird flu is a very serious problem. And, uh, whenever you congregate wildlife, uh, during migration in these very large refuges, I remember DeSoto at one time used to have 
they'd have 500,000 uh, geese uh, and, and other waterfowl at one time, you know, sitting in that, in that uh, marsh each, each evening. And uh, it's, it was that DeSoto Bend is out on the western uh, edge of the state of Iowa between uh, Iowa and Nebraska. It's a beautiful uh, uh, wildlife refuge. Now the, the snow goose population has moved farther west and staying in big reservoirs in Nebraska rather than as much many as at DeSoto. Uh, but uh, uh, whenever you congregate that, you have the chance of disease spread. Um, it, is, it, it goes up exponentially the, the the potential for that so that's true and and uh, we're still in a research stage I think to determine um, how bad it is and and uh, how at risk they are and uh, certainly when we confine animals in confined animal feeding operations and CAFOs we have the same thing we we increase the risk of disease and that's why they've gone to if they detect bird flu in a flock, they've gone ahead and killed them all because it, it, it um, um, doesn't, uh, uh, the, the chances of them surviving that in that confined area is, are slim and none. So right. uh, that's why they go ahead. Yeah. And, and very difficult. Waterfowl doesn't tend to congregate with our domestic birds very much, at least our domestic chickens, although maybe your domestic right, geese right. or your domestic ducks, they, they might congregate there. So there's more of a concern about other wild birds spreading it among chicken populations. Yeah, and basically when you're talking uh, confined animal, there are basically you know very few species of, of wild birds, birds. Uh, uh, and I'm thinking European starlings and English house sparrows, both of which are invasive species, they're not native, uh, that actually will use those uh, confinement facilities, uh, feed on the feed if they can get in, uh, nest in there, those sorts of things. I think those are much more likely to be the vectors for spreading um, it among uh, domestic fowl than, than uh, ducks and geese are. There's no reason for them to, to be in there. However, uh, we don't yet know if there's a reservoir in wild, uh, certainly there seems to be a reservoir in wild populations, and what's the, the way that it spreads from wild populations into confined animals? That is very much a big question. I think uh, we've, I've seen lots of times when they, they like to blame wildlife very quickly uh, uh, for the spread of, of bird flu, and it may or may not be the case. Uh, uh, it, uh, it may be spread by, by other means, particularly humans um, uh, in those kinds of, uh, of areas. So. And, of course, a lot of our concerns about bird flu are, are not about the birds that are encountering bird flu, but about what that disease may do if it continues to mutate and then spread among human populations. Right, and it does. <laughs> so, exactly. So exactly. we're going to take a short break. We are going to talk about trumpeter swans, I promise, <laughs> when we okay. get back. And you can join the conversation. Tell us about your favorite places to observe waterfowl in the winter. I know Jim is going to tell us about one of his favorite places here in just a moment. You can join the conversation at 866 788 9100 or send email to talk of Iowa at iowapublicradio.org. Wildlife Jim P or wildlife biologist Jim Pease with me today. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light QA. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me today, Jim Pease, Emeritus Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management at Iowa State University. We are talking about the waterfowl that winters in Iowa, something that was a pretty rare site or even a non-existent site in the not-too-distant past. We've been talking mostly about Canada geese so far this hour, and we're going to focus on trumpeter swans and other waterfowl now. You are welcome to join the conversation with your questions. Questions or your observations, 866-780-9100 is the number to call. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And Jim, let's talk about trumpeters because uh, you and I both were excited about, engaged in, and observed the, the whole reintroduction of trumpeter swans in Iowa and efforts to allow them to breed in the state. And it's been so incredibly successful and so exciting. We have done a whole show about that in the past. But right. I, I would love for you to start us off just by telling me about what you observe at Ada Hayden Park in Ames in the winter months. Well, we we have just like all the geese that overwinter in Iowa are not all Iowa geese. Some of them speak with a sort of a Minnesotan accent, you know, <laughs> and, and a Canadian accent. They they say, uh, well, anyway, they they, they have a, a different, uh, uh, but they come down here because there is open water and there is, uh, you know, places to um, uh, food to eat in the in the fields. So uh, uh, geese and swans now do the same. Uh, here in Ames, uh, and and I live just outside of Ames, and I'm I'm president of the Friends of uh, Ada Hayden Heritage Park, and and uh, we have uh, a fellow who goes every day, and he bikes all around the lake, Wolf Osterreich, and and Wolf t- keeps track of all the birds and all the wildlife that he sees, and he puts it all in a database, and it's really pretty remarkable uh, set of data uh, for that park. And he told me, I asked him last night, what was his, I've seen uh, in excess of 200 uh, swans at one time uh, on, on, on the lake in the winter. He has, I asked him, what was his total for the year? And he said his highest ever was this year, and he had 284 wow. trumpeter swans. And the geese were, are anywhere, and the, and the geese are the ones that really, well, both of them do, they, they help keep a part of the lake open, uh, just with their movement and and their swimming about, and uh, and really cold winters that that will close up, and then they have to go elsewhere. They have to find open water elsewhere. But uh, this winter, it, it's kept. Um, uh, they've been able to keep at least a small pool open. We had some really a cold spell there where it really shrank, but uh, uh, he he's found an excess. Between 500 and over 3,000 geese overwintering there, along with 284 swans. When you see these these birds are amazing. They're so big. They're this is a 30 pound bird. They have an eight foot wingspan, and when they fly, their necks are out straight. And when you see them take off, they'll they'll take off in groups of of uh, anywhere from four or five to uh, you know maybe 10 or 12 at a time. 
uh, and, and they'll fly in a certain direction. Again, there seems to be a leader, and they get in this V very quickly uh, and talk to one another. You can hear them talking to one another as they're taking off, and it is just magnificent. These birds are so graceful and so gorgeous, uh, uh, especially, I think, against a dark sky where you can see the whiteness of those birds as they fly out. They may go mile, many, many miles away to find a field that they can uh, uh, can feed on, uh, certainly waste grain and, and uh, sometimes uh, grazing uh, as well, although usually they they graze on aquatic plants. And, of course, during the winter, those those uh, plants aren't here, so aren't, aren't living. So they're um, not available to the, the trumpeters. But 284, that's a lot of, a lot of swans and, and such a success story. Just like the geese, I, I think it's pretty remarkable because these were even... Uh, as a species, they were down to, we thought, um, uh, by the the turn of the last century, uh, uh, there were uh, hardly any left. They'd been, been they, they used to be abundant when Euro-American settlers came here on all the prairie marshes, especially in the northern part of the state where we had the, these, these thousands of what are called palustrine wetlands. Uh, and that's a, a, a word you could use at a, at a cocktail party and stump people. What's palustrine wetland? You know? <laughs> and and that's, those are those prairie marshes, those shallow prairie marshes. And there were probably a, 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 any sizable ones had, had a pair of swans on them and, and uh, back in the, uh, the 1830s and 40s. But by the turn of the century, we thought there were 69 birds left. Wow. That was it. And, and in the lower 48, um, uh, they later found that there were still some more in Alaska and there were a few uh, in Canada. But 69 birds at one lake, Red Rock Lake. And you talk about the potential for disease. We could have had that species wiped out with one disease uh, it, it, because it's such an isolated uh, population, such a small population. And had a natural disaster come through there or a disease, could have wiped out the species uh, uh, for us. But instead, in the 1980s, uh, in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and then eventually in Iowa as well, um, in, the, in the 90s, I had a number of students, uh, former students, who were involved with the, the Trumpeter Swan Restoration uh, uh, Program in Iowa. And... and they're just proud as peach uh, about it because they they uh, uh, they have seen the success of this and we now have um, uh, swans a uh, hundred I think last year or the year before there were were nearly a hundred and twenty successful nests uh, of of trumpeter swans in the state and so the the restoration program has been very successful uh, they still face lots of problems they're a big bird and so. Uh, finding the the habitat for them, they the biggest problem with them is probably lead poisoning. Even though we have uh, stopped in the uh, 1980s, Iowa stopped using uh, lead in in waterfowl hunting. Those lead pellets still exist in the deep waters of of our prairie marshes and lakes, and they're still used and, for hunting other kinds of species. Well, yes, on uplands, but not on not over water. It's it's illegal to uh, to use anything uh, toxic like lead. But the swans, having such long necks, they tip up just like other ducks do, and they'll feed on on things on the bottom 
uh, and because they have such long necks, they can reach still some of that lead is still there in those those uh, sediments in the bottom of those lakes and marshes, and they can reach with that long neck, and so they they get lead lead into their uh, system and and they'll die of lead poisoning, uh, and that's still a very serious problem. Uh, power lines they run into power lines certainly. And there's certainly some illegal shooting that, that still happens. And, and now, of course, there's a potential for avian flu and other diseases. But So they're, they're still facing an, uh, sort of an uphill fight, but we've been very successful in Iowa at restoring them. And to see them and hear them is just such a magnificent experience. And, you know, I think about... And about speaking this, of hearing them, I think that, that anybody who's oh, ever heard yeah. a trumpet or swan doesn't have to ask why they're called trumpet or swans. But let's listen. This is not a giant flock. This is just a, a single <laughs> bird, or maybe it's two, but let's listen. Right. It's... <laughs> And now, now you it's have amazing. to multiply that by two hundred eighty-four, right? Yeah. <laughs> to imagine what Ada <laughs> well, Hayden <not> all... <laughs> sounds like. <laughs> not all talking at once, but yeah, and that is often, uh, boy, it, it can get louder than that. Even a, a single bird can get much louder than that. But it's that it's that trumpet uh, that that you hear that is just uh, pretty remarkable. And, and and there's such a big bird that can, that can carry a long, long ways. Uh, uh, whether over water or over land, you can you can hear that coming too, and that's that's it's just amazing. You and I have talked before. Uh, growing up, I, I I never saw except geese I see in the fall. Never saw swans as a child. Yeah. Um, never saw otters as a child on the river. Um, uh, seeing a deer uh, in the fifties and sixties was a rarity, and and. Uh, cause you if you reported that you you got your name in the paper you know <laughs> so, <laughs> what a change we've had yeah. in so many species with the efforts of uh, professional uh, wildlife agencies and and professional wildlife biologists that have have taken this on and uh, said, we're going to make this happen. I, I think it's a real tribute. And it's such, I think it's so important to understand how fortunate we are that these species have been able to come back because it didn't take us very long to just start complaining about them, Jim. <laughs> right, right. That's true. That's true. Yeah, some people seem to get bothered by change, and uh, <laughs> especially the change in, in the other critters that we share this uh, this wonderful state with. So, uh it's it's very very difficult. Now Sarah Sarah has are, an important question that I oh, okay. I wonder all the time. But you know you've talked about how the the birds themselves can actually keep this water open, and as long as they keep mm. the water open, it's worth it to stay. And there's food in the area. Sarah wants yeah. to know if they can feel cold on their feet and how their feet don't freeze. That's a great question. Uh, waterfowl feet in general have. Um, if you've ever taken one apart, you know, in biology class, they're mainly uh, tendons and there's very little muscle. So there's very little blood supply uh, to the feet. And if you watch them, they're standing on the ice sometimes and you'll see they've got, they're standing on or, or sitting, uh, standing often on one leg. So only one uh, uh, foot is touching the ice. The other one is tucked up underneath and then they'll switch legs every once in a while. So that, in addition, helps. But they have very little blood supply going to those. It's mainly tendons um, uh, and a few ligaments, but mainly tendons. There's not a lot of um, uh, tissue, muscle tissue down into the foot, so there's very little blood supply. So 
it gets cold, but not it doesn't impact them uh, very much at all. They can also tend to uh, reduce the blood supply. They have ways of doing that to the foot that's in contact with the ice. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty remarkable. They, they uh, birds in general have have very little uh, muscle tissue in their feet themselves, so they often don't uh, conduct. It doesn't conduct out the heat. Uh, if you had a, a lot of blood supply there, you would lose heat more quickly, but they don't have a lot of blood supply. So, yeah. Jeffrey has a, another question. He says, when I see a wedge of soaring geese above, the number is so much less than what it used to be. It's hard to believe that the numbers are coming back. But the, those wedges of geese that, that Jeffrey are seeing, they're they're that resident population often, right? They're, they're a smaller right. flock than that great migration. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I've seen huge flocks of geese, uh, even during the day, coming out from a from an overnight, you know, stay on a, on a lake and they're going out to feed. They may go 10, 15 miles out away from that lake to feed on, on fields. And there may be a hundred or more birds uh, pretty commonly in those flocks. Uh, so... Uh, I wouldn't say they're small, the ones I've seen at least, but... Uh, <laughs> well, and they uh, often, I mean, they move big. They move from place to place. I always wonder, you know, when I see a flock flying west, for example, <laughs> in the, you know, in, right. in, in the afternoon, where they're going and why they're all going and how they know where to go together. Because this is not part of a migration. This is part of a, a daily routine. Yeah, and they're going out to fields uh, to pick up waste grain. And how do they know where the waste grain is? Well, they call up the local co-op. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, they don't. They, they they have scouts out, and just as hunters will put out decoys to attract birds in, uh, some birds are out there hunting around, and when they find a field and another flock flies over, they see those birds down in the field, and they go, oh, there must be some uh, grain down there, something to eat, and uh, so that flock comes in, and and then there are, uh, they talk. You'll hear them honking to one another, and they're probably discussing the the quality of the grain uh, or the quantity of it. Who knows? Uh, and and uh, uh, it's it's a um, uh, you know you 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 have to search, and you got to have scouts out that are searching for that all the time. But it's such a I I just get so much joy out of seeing this movement, hearing this movement. And for people who don't have an Ada Hayden near their homes, where do you go? Where should they go to try to observe some of these beautiful, beautiful animals that spend their winters in Iowa? Well, uh, any place there's open water, you'll not only have waterfowl, you'll have bald eagles as well. So often below dams uh, on almost any of our rivers that have uh, uh, dams on them. There's usually open water below it. Or if you have an electrical company that has cooling towers and that they recirculate that water back into the river or the, or the lake, uh, that keeps the water open in the wintertime. It's where we used to go as kids and watch eagles uh, fish in that open water below a, a cooling tower. And, and uh, uh, so any place like that that has some open water, some... Um, businesses will keep want to keep their ponds open in the in the uh, winter time and it attracts a lot of waterfall and uh, they'll do that by aerating it uh, except in extreme cold weather but uh, usually uh, uh, they're certainly below dams any place there's a strong current there will often be open places in the water uh, uh, along the river but especially below dams and rapids 
uh, and you'll see waterfowl hanging around there for sure. And what's the best time of day to go? Well, if you go early, uh, geese will, um, they go out from, from the, the lake or the open water uh, at all times of the day. They usually come back right at sunset uh, as it's starting to get uh, pretty dark. The swans tend to hang around for the morning. Uh, I don't know. They like to sleep late or whatever and, <laughs> and uh, will we'll go out late morning and um, will not come back until after dark. And uh, somehow they they find their way back and uh, uh, do do land. Some some will come earlier than that, but many of them uh, are, and they'll be there in the morning. And uh, we go down to Ada Hayden, and you can s- see them um, in the in the, uh, the the open water of the lake. Uh, I I saw just coming into the station today. Uh, there were probably sixty or seventy uh, out there. I didn't stop to count them all, but I just counted them as a group. So. Yeah, definitely get worth out there going and for a walk. enjoy this restoration. You bet. <laughs> Jim Pease, thank you so much. My pleasure. Jim Pease is Emeritus Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management at Iowa State University. And we've been talking about waterfowl that spends the winter in Iowa. This week is Member Appreciation Week, and we just want to tell you how much we appreciate that you listen and that you invest in Iowa Public Radio. Listener support is our single most powerful source of funding, so we thank you for your dedication, and you also just make it worthwhile to come into work every day. So thank you so much for being there, for being the backbone of Iowa Public Radio. This is Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe.